0: So join me on this journey, speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. I have a wonderful woman in front of me. Her name is Janice McDermott. She's written a couple of memoirs one of which is called Resilient. That's not the one she's most famous for, but I'm going to read a little excerpt from that. Leaving her tattered faith on the convent doorstep, Sister Janice grabs her suitcase of unusable clothes and steps into her sister's car and into her new life. It's the beginning of her jaunt through the rest of her life. Navigating the totally foreign world that is now her life, Janice's experiences challenges, and the joys all the world offers, numerous ill-fitting jobs, world travel, raising a family, and so many other completely unexpected life events. Continuing the journey started in Janice's successful memoir, What Would Your Father Say? Her new memoir, Resilient, leads readers on a highly personal trek toward a life of normalcy and self-esteem, and the many surprises life threw her way that even Janice, could never have imagined and her story is so interesting it has so many twists and turns her moments she's she sort of reinvented herself a million times and through it has realized that to keep on working on yourself is really the goal and then how to serve others the whole entire time these have been her themes throughout her life and what she's doing now is is just all of that put together and it's so Fabulous, and I'm so excited to have sent this lovely woman an email from seeing her book and saying, "Hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast." And you said yes, and you wrote me right back, and we got on the phone, and it was—I—I feel that my life is better for listening to you and learning your story. So,
1: welcome, Janice, to the podcast, Second Wind. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's been so fun getting to know you and to. Bring my voice to the world, which is what you're helping me do. So thank you. Well, thank you for writing these stories. I can't even imagine. As I was just saying to
0: Janice before we got on, I said, this should be like a television, you know, made for television movie. Because it reads really well. It reads like something you'd watch, like a Hallmark thing almost. Yes, we'll figure that out. But in the meantime, (laughs) in the meantime, why don't you tell us about the most the most transitional moment, the thing, the, the, the new path that was presented to you, and how you got there and, and what happened. Okay, I will
1: do that. Um, it has to do with after my 29 years of teaching, I actually had this dream to work at the Department of Education. And so one day, in desperation, I went there, and to make a long story short, I got the job. And I started as a regional coordinator, but eventually I was promoted to regional manager. And that started to be a problem because it was a man's world. The commissioner and the regional managers were men and they were not so happy that there was a woman there. And so um, life became really difficult for me. And I uh, was telling my friend Karen, about this whole thing. And she said, you should talk to my friend, Steve. And I had no idea who Steve was, but Steve turned out to be a life coach. Mm-hmm. And so he really changed my life. He um, was helped me be strong, show up there, talk to the commissioner, ask for what I needed. And in that whole process, He told me that he thought I would make a life a great life coach and that he would actually hire me. So I went immediately and I took the training. It took a year for me to do that. And after the year, I had it in my mind that I would leave the department and start coaching. And so that was really so pivotal because. I had lots of paying clients by the time I graduated. And um, from there, I didn't end up working with Steve, but I started my own life coaching business. How old were you when that happened? Oh, my gosh. In my mid-50s, for sure. Maybe closer to 60. (laughs) I have been coaching for the last 13 years. And what I've done, what I did initially was to work with the administrators because as a regional manager, I saw that so many administrators, superintendents were either uh, perfect for the job or horrible. And in my position, I could never say, how did you ever get here? But when I got to coach some of them, I I, it was called I called it leadership coaching and I got to work with teachers and administrators and superintendents and that made a huge difference. Wow! Before Before we we, unpack your,
0: your your who is Janice? You end up ever coaching any of
1: the people that gave you a difficult time? Um, that's a great question. I want to say that the the men that I worked with never gave me a difficult time. They were just passive and compliant, like whatever, mm-hmm. because I would ask them, have you seen how the commissioner treats me? And they said, yeah, but they never. And I, I did end up coaching two of those people who went back as superintendents in districts. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: <laughs> well, in the man's world, I was just going to ask you, here's this woman, you're in a, in a very big leadership role, and you're having these meetings with these men, and, and they're just, are they just like not paying attention to you? Are they just, oh, yeah. she's here, let's ignore her? Yeah. Is that kind of what was going on? Yeah,
1: uh, totally. Here's what I want to focus on. And we are always free to decide what we want to focus on. I learned so much there. I'm so grateful I got to work with the superintendents that I did get to work with because I learned how, well, I had a lot of bad um, administrators in my own teaching career. So I had a clear idea of what strong leadership looked like. And the most successful superintendents actually paid attention to what I said, and they were very successful. They got really strong, and um, I think we're really proud of their work. So at some point, I decided, you know, I've been out of teaching for a long time, and it felt like my coaching needed to take a new direction. Okay.
0: Well, now we know what you're doing. And we kind of have that idea of a little how you got there. Let's unpack this marvelous twisty, turny journey that is your life. Let's let's go back,
1: back, okay. unpack it for us. Okay. Um, do you want me to talk about my early t- years? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with with
0: how, where you started and, and where you came from. So you were uh,
1: uh, born to So my parents were mm-hmm. engaged for 10 years. They finally got married in their mid-30s. They had five children in nine years. And my father died of a massive heart attack when I was seven. And my mom pretty clearly said she didn't want any children. She told us that. And then she was stuck with five children. And I think stuck is the operative word. Uh, She didn't ever feel that she had the strength or the ability to have, to be a good mom, I think is why she didn't want children. So anyway, with my father's death, my mom got sick. She got tuberculosis within a year. And uh, there was... No one really did take care of us. So we went to an orphanage. My baby, my brother was too young. They didn't take babies. And so he went to live with an uncle in Chicago. But we eventually came back from that experience. And the social workers, I'm now eight and my sister's 10. And she tells us that we really have to work hard because our mom's been sick for a long time to keep this family together. So we um, did work really hard. My mom, you know, really taught us to cook and do all the things, do the laundry, clean the house. Um, But within a short amount of time, my mom got sick again. She had a relapse and we went to foster homes, all of us to different ones. My littlest brother went with my oldest sister. He was still little, but we all were in different places. And for another whole year, we were in these foster homes.
0: Yeah. Well, so, and when you were with your whole family and your mom, it's not like it was easy. No, there wasn't a lot of money. You had to learn how to do without. And in your book, you even write about going to the bakery. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Oh, my it's gosh, I can't believe that you picked out that story. Um, well, my mom always made us homemade bread. And I we, we really wanted Peter Pan bread or sunbeam bread, baked bread. And I was always so embarrassed to go to school with my homemade bread. Because everybody had the really even cut bread. So anyway, at the bakery... Um, we would pick up these bags that were really meant for pigs it said not for human consumption but we would just be so excited to pull out um dump out all the bread and if there were sometimes rolls or um donuts or stuff that they had stuffed in there everything was sort of packed in there so but we would always straighten out all the bread Um, Mm. just to have something like sweet that was bakery made was such a great treat for us. Your treat. Yeah. So this is all the stuff that they couldn't sell. Right. Right. It was day old. It was meant for the farmers. Farmers came in and got that.
0: Wow. But that was like your icing on your cake.
1: Well, we lived, we were on, um, welfare and. My mom was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse, so she um, didn't make hardly any money, and she was an incredibly honest person. So even if she did just a little bit of sewing or something, she would report that she had made that little bit of money. So anyway, uh, life was not easy, but when I got to the foster home, what I what all I wanted to do was go home. And I was sick that whole year. And my foster mom would take me to the doctor. And I remember so clearly sitting there on the exam table. And the doctor saying, can't really find anything wrong with me. And I would say, how come you guys don't get it? I just want to go home. I want to be at my home. I don't want to be here. Wow. I mean, you were literally homesick. I was. And yeah. why I wanted to go back to that life that was so difficult, It, you know, it's given me so much insight into foster care and uh, even living in that orphanage. Like I kept saying to myself, I'm not really an orphan because I know my mom's going to come for me sometime. Yeah, and you had said
0: that even from when you were real little, you remember now you can coin it little hits of intuition that have always I, been tapping on your shoulder. Yeah. Which is a very common theme through a lot of these second wind conversations. So there's a lot of intuitive connecting of the dots and and listening to that. Yeah. So you finally, now you're a teenager and you have to leave the house. Did you, you left the house early,
1: didn't you? No, I turned 18 and my mom. Okay. She had said to me, um, you know, I'm not going to get money for you anymore. You have to make a decision about what you're doing. And I didn't have the best relationship with my mom. So I never even told her what my plan was. And she was starting to get really nervous. Like, what are you going to do? And I had already signed up to go to the convent months ago. The convent. Yes. That's
0: drastic. drastic. That's pretty drastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty drastic. And, and I said, well, did you have boyfriends and stuff? You said, yeah,
1: I had a boyfriend. I thought I was in love, but I signed up for the convent. Oh, yeah. I know his name is Francis, and I used, he used to say to me, what are you thinking? And I'm like, I know you would not understand this because I feel like I have a calling to go to the common. And part of my thinking was that I really um, had no other options. My mom had always said, you've got to get a good education. That's their only way out of poverty. So part of my story is about the educational system and I'm actually reading a book by Oprah and this man, a uh, doctor that she had on her show uh, called what, what Happened to You? And I think if the adults yeah. in my world, especially the educators, would have said, what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you? Um, I think my life would have been so different, but I always, even when I was a senior in high school, I was sitting in the very lowest class, the C class, where I had to fight to get to take algebra or geometry, or um, they would say things like, you are probably going to end up as a secretary, so you should take typing. Um, I say no. I need a language. I need, you know. So I was always fighting the system to let me do more. So actually, in my book, I write about in fourth grade, which was the first year that I was back at my home school. I I remember sitting in Mrs. Casper's class and saying, um, she. I'm going to grow up and be the kind of teacher I need desperately now in that class. She was so angry that I couldn't remember my times tables and I desperately uh, needed someone to be empathetic. I had just been gone. I'd lost my father, my mom, you know, I had been in these different environments that were really difficult for me. So, that's what I did, uh, you know, all through my years of, and and part of the reason that I ended up in the convent is that I had this thought that I don't think they ever flunk out a nun. <laughs> I'd never heard of that, That they were always. And also, yeah, okay. but the convent also, they study. They, exactly. These, these women, they, are, have, they study, endless... they learn. Exactly. I had endless amounts of time to study. So even, you know, when I was a postulant, I um, had all this time I started and I started to get really good grades. And I'm like, oh my God, I did. Who is that? Yeah, I know. When I graduated from college, I was just so incredibly elated that this miracle had actually happened. It felt like totally because okay. the convent sent you the
0: convent gave you a vehicle to get to college. Right. Right. That was one of the motivating factors for you. Yeah. So that was very insightful. To figure that out.
1: And but go. And at the time, I just help each other? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. At the time, what? At the time, I I thought that I had a vocation. Mm-hmm. and that it would bring a lot of honor to my family. And I grew up in a very uh, strict Catholic home with in a Catholic environment. So wouldn't it be just great to have a vocation? But my mom wasn't really happy with that. She didn't think that was... She said, if you want to live a life of poverty, you stay right here. Oh, that's all she saw the convent as for you? She, she was not happy. She said, there are so many things. the Those nuns did not treat you that well. There were so many things that she was opposed to, which was shocking to me because so um, religious. Yeah, that is interesting. You would, yeah. Yeah. You would think the
0: opposite for sure. Mm-hmm. But at some point you decided the convent wasn't your path anymore. <laughs>
1: There's another one of those
0: turns. What happened?
1: Well, there were a number of things. I was, first of all, I was always taught you put your mind to something and you don't turn back. You don't look back. You just do it. So I'm in the convent saying that this is the best life I've ever had, which it was. (laughs) And, um, I was actually, I think in my senior year, and we had moved from the convent to Briarcliff College, which is the college that our nuns ran. So I um, um, was laying out the vestments for the, for the priest, was one of my jobs there. And one day he said to me, have you ever thought about leaving I'm like no why would you ask that and he said because you are most in danger of leaving if you've never thought about it so that was my first <sighs> then I started I was uh, getting a, a minor in social work so I, and it was the first year that they had guys on this campus and so I was out on field placements with with different guys and they'd say you just don't seem like the nun type. Are you sure this is what you want to? And so um, that happened. And then um, my senior year, uh, a woman from my hometown named Barb. Barb was in the class behind me and she came to the cliff and she asked me one day, she said, if I was as unhappy as you are, I'd do something about it. And this just, this little statement was, I I immediately thought, she knows me. I never thought of myself as being unhappy. So I immediately went to um, the counseling center and I talked to this man and he said, Do you want to leave the comment? And I'm like, No, no. And then he said, well, I want you to think about that and then come back in a week. So he talked, we talked about other things, but this was the second, you know, the second time and the third time he kept asking me, do you want to leave? And every time, maybe the third or fourth time I said, well, it might be nice to leave, but I can't leave. And so then he said to me, you can leave. You needed that permission. Yeah. Because can, like you, I was brought up,
0: you do something, you see it through. You don't right. just quit in the middle. You don't look back. Right, right. Right. See it through. So you didn't even think you could leave right if you wanted to. So it wasn't even in your in your radar,
1: so to right. speak. Right. So I would go back to my little um, cell, we called them, the tiny little room, and I'd just lay on my bed and imagine what it would be like. And I just found myself elated. Oh, really? I was just like, oh my God, I'm never going to be depressed another day in my life. I can get myself out of here. So So, interesting though,
0: that you didn't even know that you were depressed until somebody else told you were depressed. Right. Right. So interesting. Okay. And you expand upon that in the book. And I I suggest everybody go get the book Resilient so you can read the story. We are just scraping the surface here. Um, But so you now, you finally go through the the different avenues you have to do to get out of the comment and you're like, woohoo, now my life is going to go gangbusters. And then what happened?
1: Well, um, I had already signed up for a teaching job in a a town close to my hometown in Iowa. I taught there for a year, but I was teaching in a um, school that was, I felt like I needed to be with kids who were in poverty. So I um one of my dreams, now I don't know where this came from, but one of my dreams was to hitchhike in Europe. And since I had been locked up, I felt locked up for five years, I would make that dream a reality. So that was like I quit my teaching job just a couple days early. And uh, took off and hitchhiked in Europe with another friend who um, had been in the convent with me, and I knew she knew how to speak French, and I knew she had already been to Europe. Uh. So this was a grand adventure. So we did that. I came back, and I had already gotten a teaching job in a city, a town outside of Chicago. So that's where I ended up, and eventually, that's where I met my husband, and um, he's been the love of my life. He has loved me back to help. There you go. What I always say.
0: Yes. So, so you ended up teaching, and you just kept teaching and teaching and growing and growing and being recognized for your teaching, and you kept getting promoted and then you it brings us to where the gentleman that promoted you for your last teaching job or administrative job was dying
1: right unfortunately
0: and he's the one who said i uh, i want you to take my position right and his position was in the in the boys club so to speak right so you were thrust into that position with yeah, all the he,
1: he was actually the first boss that I ever had that truly believed in me. He thought I could do anything. I started out just as a coordinator working in his region
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in the end when he was dying he said basically his thought was I have nothing to lose. I'm I'm leaving here. And you've been doing my job all these years because right after I started, he got promoted to be assistant commissioner. Assistant so, commissioner. Okay. Yeah. So I did that job for a long time without getting paid. Really? Yeah. Why what didn't it, you get paid? Uh, I got paid my coordinator job, but not the regional. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. You're doing it without getting the...
1: Yeah. And I was pretty fine with that I had other women who had started to work at the department say you're being used and abused and I always felt like um, I was just glad to be learning I was in a position where I could be of service Mm -hmm. to the superintendents in the regions where I was working and I loved that work. I really love getting to know the districts, getting to see. Um, My question when I went to the department was how could, because I worked in the Denver public schools and I worked for a long time in the Milwaukee public schools. Why are we working so hard and not really getting the results we want? And, you know, I had this feeling always that it had to do The bottom line was the poverty, the deprivation of the children that we worked with. They came in at such a deficit, but I took the Montessori training because I loved uh, having Montessori be available for inner city kids, for kids who could never afford to have to do that. So you were trying to bring like a new way of of learning to them. Well, for three years I taught just the way I was taught, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I can't be doing this to these kids. I awesome. have to find a different way." Like, I one day I heard myself saying, "Take out your spellers. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a quiz. You know, the, all this stuff." Yeah, that um, was so difficult for me when my, my body and my mind was somewhere else worrying about how we were going to get food, worrying about how my mother was, you know, so depressed. Um, how could I make her happy, which was such a trap for myself. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a heavy, that's a heavy burden. Yeah. So, you know, for you not to know that nine times four equals 36, like, that didn't matter. You had like real life survival things going on, and right. a lot of these inner city kids do, and a lot exactly. of kids exactly. yeah so yeah, that's that's a whole can of worms right there, and I'm sure you you brought some really good insight to the children- I bet you there are so many lives that you affected with your insight, and you probably don't even know how many people you affected in such a positive way.
1: Well, I would I hope that that's true and what I really wanted to instill in the children that I worked with was don't let anyone else decide what who you are and what you can bring. So just giving them the little bit or as much confidence as they could to have their own voice. And, and even with my own kids, I would say, um, my daughter would come home and she'd say, "I got a B on this." And I'm like, "You know what? You did your best. Give yourself an A." Or you know what's bad? You don't let anybody outside yourself decide um, this worth for this project or whatever.
0: That's that's a good nugget right there. You decide it. Don't let other people decide your worth, your value. Because when we get start start listening to others, that's when we start getting into trouble. Right.
1: Actually, um, I have a quote that I live by and it hasn't been with me that long, but it really speaks to everything I believe. It says you cannot be a pleaser of others and a maintainer of your own alignment at the same time. They just don't go together. And um, learning to have a voice and please yourself is my lifelong journey. Sometimes I've been good at it. And sometimes I look back and say, oh, my God, what was I thinking Right. And you said you, you always felt like your life was kind of a, a
0: hodgepodge of of trying this and trying that and going here and doing that. And I, I know that there's plenty of people listening who have felt that same way. I think people would look at me and say, Oh, there's I know my children would say, Oh, now mom's doing a podcast. Oh, she was doing her training for integrative nutritional health coaching before that. Oh, she was doing this. Yeah, but I saw every single thing I did through. And then it, I believe it all gets put in the batter for the best, yummiest baked item you're ever going to have, right? So whatever that looks like. And for you, it seems like all of that brought you into your coaching. Tell us a little bit
1: about the coaching you're doing now. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to say that I had a, a longtime friend from my high school days, and she said to me, Janice, I'm so glad that you're finally getting paid for something you've always done. Oh, wow. And That's amazing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I remember being at the department and realizing that for all of my years of teaching, I didn't have time to really talk to anyone. I was just there being with the kids. That was my full-time energy output. But at the department, we had some times that were downtimes, and some of the people that I worked with would come and talk to me, ask me questions. And at some point I thought, I bet I could get paid to do this. <laughs> and so um It's the work I've prepared my whole life for. And it so fits me because I can't stop reading. I can't stop learning. I love every new book feels like, oh, my God, this is a different way of saying what I want to talk to people about, to encourage them, to have them be inspired, to have them... Uh, be empowered to have them see their own greatness. And Uh, so um, that's um, the work. The work is um, so that each person can step into their own brilliance and step into their own magnificence. And I love it. I that love is it. So Every well single it's it's like it's not even work. It's play for me because um, I've learned to um, squelch the advice monster. Is what I love to say. It's not about giving advice. Every single person knows their uh, own process. Knows their own the skill of being a really great life coach is being able to ask the questions. Like, does that story really work for you? Or what's really up for you that um, is asking to be born? Mm. What's the real challenge here for you? And to question the stories that don't work. First of all, my own stories that don't work for me And the commitment to making sure that I stop telling those stories because it's so easy to slip back into, I was so victimized, you know, or the stories that that we tell ourselves that do not really support us. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's like our comfort ego protection zone. Yeah. And it's not even true, usually. Exactly. Not
1: even actually true. Actually, I love that you're saying that because so many of the stories we do tell ourselves are not true. Yeah. I have two questions. Okay. One is, do you mind sharing
0: with us how old you are now?
1: I am almost 75.
0: Love it. Yeah. And we don't do this on video yet, but I have it. And there'll be a little videogram, hopefully, of you. But you're a beautiful woman. So I get why the the boys were saying, hey, you don't look like the nun type. I mean, I get that. (laughs) So that's my first question. So second question, do you have, can you think of someone, and you have plenty, I'm sure, but one in particular that comes up, one person that you've helped that really just you were like, okay, I I can see that this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I just saw it happen. It just came to fruition in front of me.
1: Actually, I have so many stories. Oh, I bet. Um, and I've written a lot of them. I've had some of my clients write testimonials, so they're on my website. But I think I will talk about one uh, young man who came to me and he was depressed. He was in a dead-end job. He told me he had such a bad childhood. His father abandoned him. He could never be a husband. He could never be, he could never have a child. And his work, he was stuck in a very dead-end job. So um, through our work together. Um, When I finally had to say goodbye to him, he had achieved every single goal that we had set out. He had a really high-paying job. He had married his sweetheart. He had a baby. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, he was just um, so happy with his life. That's amazing. And he that, said, you know, I, you've given me all the tools to continue to create the great life that I now have. Right. Because you were saying it's already within
0: us. It's just a matter of finding it, kind of like right. peeling the layers away to get to the truth and then how to help people express that truth, follow that truth through, not get, not get stopped up at the first hurdle because so many people, you and I were talking, they get to the first hurdle of, oh, I want to start a podcast. Oh, well, that's really technical and I don't know who I should call. So maybe this isn't a good idea, right? It's so easy to do. Right. And you help people just barrel over those hurdles. They weren't that big anyway. Once you get past them, you're like, oh, that was nothing. Right. And and then you have more strength to keep moving through the next series. And life is just a series of hurdles. And challenges and ditches, and whatever you want to call them. If you had something to leave us with, a nugget, oh my goodness.
1: Um, Well, on my wall, I have a quote from that I always say from one of my clients. She made this for me. It's from a book called Whatever Arises, Love That. Mm. And I am challenged with my own life to. Um, make sure that no matter what is happening, I I see we go along pretty steady and then something happens that, you know, throws us way off. So I keep saying that to myself, whatever arises, love that. We all need more love, not less. Whatever arises, love that. Right.
0: That's fantastic. Yes. Yes. Who can't
1: Use that on a daily basis. Right. Right? I actually also really want to say to you that I've always had my own coach Mm -hmm. who is an amazing person pushing me forward to look at my own stories and to um, just... Sometimes I think she's a little brutal, but she's really not. She's just like telling me the truth about whatever story I'm creating. So um, I I just want to say that the coaching for me has made all the difference in the world. Yeah. And it's
0: interesting. The people that um, I've had interviewed here, had conversations with all of the coaches and a lot of the people that are already established, if you will, um, all have coaches. Yeah. It's really interesting. The coaches have coaches. Yes. So interesting. And I think it's it's not a bad idea. And the fact that you had seen, I
1: mean, what year was it when you started seeing Steve? Um, let me think. Did you say the 80s? No, 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 no. Um, it was my last year's at CDE. So I left in 2008. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So from that time on, okay. I've always had my own coach.
0: Okay. Because there really weren't any coaches in the 80s anyways. No. No. 2008. 2008. But that's still early. In yeah. In the coaching world. Like it's it's pretty popular now. Yeah. But you you had insight. Your friend had insight to send you to Steve. Yeah. I'm
1: so grateful to her.
0: Yeah, these little things that people pop into our lives and and take us down another path that that we need to pay attention
1: to. Absolutely, uh, and I I want to say I've been blessed with so many people like that in my life. Yeah,
0: yeah. And when we sit back and look at who came along and when and how that impacted us, it's pretty. It's pretty incredible.
1: Absolutely,
0: and I can't. Honestly, just say it's about luck or
1: no, about coincidence. it's not, it's bigger. No, better. I always say that, um, it's not very powerful to think that it's about luck, mm-hmm. it's really about uh, using your imagination and visioning to know that you want something more. Like at this point in my life. I knew I needed to revive my coaching business because um, I had had felt complete about my education, um, my work in education, even though I still would, you know, I'm still open to working with educators. um, I've really rebranded myself as a transition coach because when I look at my life, So I needed so much help along the way with transitions.
0: Mm, It's
1: a really good way to say it.
0: And the fact that you're not just like, oh, here I am. I am just about 75 and I should just retire. I should just kick it back and hang out. But you're not. And that's what I love about the second wind. You are a great example of the woman power that we have when we get to put on the woman suit to come down to this earth. We are here to serve and share and take all the wisdom we've gained all throughout our lives, connect the dots and give it out, put it out there and let the younger women stand on our shoulders and take us even further years and years and years to come. And you are a living proof of that because you're not stopping anytime soon. I don't think I've got a couple of people I'm going to send your way that I think could really use your coaching so tell us how people can get in touch with you.
1: Well, my website is www.janismcdermott.com, and um, you'll find out everything. You can message me from my website. Yeah. So uh, go get resilient and in there. It's a great I, read. Yeah, it's a great read. I have it.
0: It's a Yay. good book. Thank you. Absolutely, and we'll put all that in the show notes. So Janice, thank you so much for sharing your story. There's so much more to it. So I hope everybody goes and grabs the book. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think and made you feel.